This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me. And I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the word of the Lord. It's about an hour and a half train ride south from Berlin to get to a little town called Wittenberg. Gail and I visited the home where Martin Luther lived there 500 years ago. We went to the palace. It was there on the chapel door of the palace that he nailed the 95 theses asking for public debate. We went into the church and sang with a group of Lutherans from the United States. A mighty fortress is our God, Anna Festeberg. Martin Luther kept poring over Paul's letter to the Romans and finally decided sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia. It's in scripture alone and in faith alone, in grace alone, that we are saved. God does not love us more because we are miserable. God does not love us more because we're kneeling on a cold stone floor at 3 a.m. saying our prayers than he does when we offer them at 3 p.m. Faith alone in grace alone. 200 years later, the Wesley brothers would say, Martin Luther was right. But we experience God's grace in different ways, at different times, in different seasons. We experience grace preveniently. We experience grace as justifying. We experience grace as sanctifying. And briefly, they meant this. The justifying part is what John experienced one night at a Moravian prayer meeting when he heard the the leader of the group, reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans, and John would say, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and assurance was given me that my sins, even mine, had been forgiven, and I was made whole. That's justifying grace, being set right. The Wesleys said, though, that in that very same moment that one receives the gift of God just as you are, God's grace begins to sanctify you, coming from the Latin sanctus, which means holy or set apart. God begins to change your behavior so that you do not act like all of them. You act like him, his son, Jesus. The provenient part of grace, coming from Latin, pray, venere, to come before, to come before. The grace of God that came to us even before we realized it, even before we understood it, 
In this lection today, John says, Jesus said, No one comes to the to me except the Father draws him. Preveniently, God draws. Let's take a look. Number one, the first thing we note here is another of those places where people who didn't read nor write who had to concentrate very hard on what they were hearing, would have heard a very familiar word. Remember that after Alexander the Great and his armies swept around a major part of the Mediterranean world, there came a time when more Jews understood Greek than understood Hebrew. And Hebrew became a dead language. It was resurrected, if you would, by the new nation of Israel after World War II and the establishment of the modern nation Israel, so that Hebrew is spoken again in the streets of Jerusalem, but it was not for more than 2,000 years. They spoke Greek. So a group of scholars down on the northern coast of Africa at Alexandria translated the scriptures into Greek, and that translation is called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, Jews who went to synagogue every Friday night and heard the Torah read completely through every year would have heard this word any number of times. Gonzgoja, Gonzgoja, Gonzgoja. Ah, yes, that's what the people did when they were in the wilderness with Moses, who so quickly forgot how difficult 400 years of slavery had been, and so they grumbled. Some scholars translate it grumble, some translate complain, some translate murmur. They murmured, they grumbled, they complained. It's sort of under the breath, you know, one to the other, one to the other. Well, we had it better in Egypt than we do here with Moses. Jesus understands, and he uses the same word back to them. Do not grumble, he said. Do not grumble. And just in case you haven't caught that word as appearing in the Torah, Jesus goes straight to it by saying, Yes, your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they all died. You got the bread you were looking for, and you still died. So listen carefully to the bread I'm describing to you. So we start here with this business of dying, dying. One of the men who sat right out there last Sunday morning, who signed in on one of your pews with his wife, had a massive stroke late Tuesday and died on Wednesday. He was in Sunday school last Sunday morning with many of you. He died, never dreaming When he was in worship 11 o'clock last Sunday at Boston Avenue, he would be dead in 72 hours. It comes to all of us. Sometimes we anticipate, sometimes not. There's a new movie out called Get Low. Those who previewed the movie say that Robert Duvall may well earn another nomination for Academy Award. It's based on a true story. Way back in the Great Depression, 1930s, in a little town in Tennessee, suddenly an old man came walking into town one day, a fellow named Felix. He'd been living as a recluse for 40 years up in the hills of Tennessee, and one day he came to town. 
He went to the undertaker and said, I want to arrange my funeral and I want it to be right away. He wanted to be at his own funeral. So to be sure that he would have a crowd at his funeral, he announced that he would be giving a ticket to everybody who came, that a number would be drawn after he actually died and the winner would get his 300 acres up in the hills. That drew a crowd. This old man, Felix, who's been a recluse for 40 years, has a recurring nightmare of a house on fire, of one figure running away, just a silhouette, just a silhouette. What does the town think happened 40 years before? How have they judged him? How have they understood or misunderstood all of these years? He wants to hear it just before he dies. And the point Jesus is making is, we do all die. So what he's offering is very important. Okay, okay number two. No one comes to the Father unless drawn by the Father. And those whom the Father draws come to me. And then he says, those who have heard and learned from my Father come to me. I was reading a couple of weeks ago about the World Missionary Society having a meeting in Edinburgh, Scotland. This same group, their predecessors, of course, met a hundred years ago in 1910, Protestant World Missionary Conference had 1,200 delegates in Edinburgh in 1910. They believed the world was basically at peace and with ships and trains, they could now cover the planet. That within just a few years, everybody would have heard about Jesus and then Jesus would come back again. We went through World War I, a worldwide depression, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, many millions of people under communism for 70 years, a war in the Middle East, repeated fighting and more fighting. This year, there were not 1,200, there were 300. And rather than feeling really good about the future, they realized that little progress had been made in Christianity in the last hundred years. The author I was reading said, we send out missionaries now, but often just a week or ten days. They go build a building. They do an operation or two. They pull teeth. They go home again. Often they've been changed. The people who've had a tooth fixed or get a new pair of glasses, something good has come to them. But is the connection really made between this act of love and that which motivated those who brought it and did it? This author said, you see, it's the Jesus thing. 
if we read this book, we just can't get away from the Jesus thing. We really must have in our deepest heart the belief that everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. And those who learn from the Father will be drawn to him. Number three, mumbling, murmuring, complaining. I think our word today is whining. We know him. How can this man whose mother and father we know say he's some kind of bread from heaven? That's the question, you know. Can Almighty God, who was big enough to fling billions of stars into the heavens, really believe he came in a human being one time? A human being one time? In April, Gail and I were again in Paris. We had set aside one whole day to go to the Louvre. We'd been there before. Our first times there, we had been with a bus load of tourists. Uh, the bus pulls up at one of the entrances. Everyone's handed a ticket. You go quickly through the turnstile. They rush you upstairs to take a look at Venus de Milo, Winged Victory, and the Mona Lisa put you back on the bus. This year, we had a whole day. We went early. It was drizzling rain, cold. They've arranged the Louvre now so that you can catch all three of those, one major stairway. You can see them all very quickly. We got into the room where the Mona Lisa is, and it was packed with people already early in the morning. Uh, there are guards there, and they keep people sort of formed into a semicircle, and the people press in as close as they can, and then the whole room fills. But if one is patient... Those who are looking from the very front do move through the crowd and people get to keep moving forward. While we were waiting our turn, moving gently forward, I was amazed how many people were holding up cell phones up over the crowd, flashing a picture and then taking off. Wanting to prove to somebody they saw the Mona Lisa. And I was pretty sure that they didn't take the time to go right down the hallway to five more paintings done by Leonardo da Vinci. Not as well known, but magnificent nonetheless. Leonardo da Vinci was a contemporary of Martin Luther. No evidence they ever met each other. Martin Luther lived up at this little place of Wittenberg in Germany, and Leonardo da Vinci, of course, lived down in Italy, a very small little town of Vinci at first, and then finally in Florence and Rome. When he died... He had a few paintings still in his possession. One of those was the Mona Lisa, and another hangs there in that hallway. It's larger, not finished. Art connoisseurs debate how long he had worked on this painting. Had he worked a little, put it aside, worked a little, put it aside? Nobody's quite sure, but it's not quite finished. It has two women and a baby and a little lamb. If one looks carefully, one sees that the women look almost the same age, but they're not supposed to be. It's mother-daughter. The daughter's Mary, of course. The mother 
Saint Anne. We Protestants don't say much about Mary's mother because the Bible doesn't say anything about Mary's mother. But in Roman Catholicism, stories have grown up and there is a gospel that didn't make it into the Bible that the Catholics take credence in and find that the mother of Mary was called Anne, so she's now Saint Anne. And they even believe in the immaculate conception that Mary herself was born without male sperm and female egg and so on. Leonardo da Vinci painted these two women and the baby. Mary seems to be almost sitting on the lap of her mother, even though she's a grown young woman. And here's this chubby little child right next to her leg there. This beautiful little boy. And he has his arms sort of draped around the neck of a lamb, just a little bitty lamb. But we know what Leonardo da Vinci is saying, that one day millions of people will kneel at the table and sing, O Lamb of God, that taketh away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. You really believe God was present? in a little boy who played in the streets of a small town with his friends, who learned a trade with his father, who worked as a carpenter, maybe a stonemason, and then became a teacher and preacher and healer and worker of miracles? It's what you're being asked. Do you really believe that God Almighty was present in a person? Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, number four. John says if you can believe that, if you can get there, it's because God was already drawing you. Preveniently, God's grace was trying to reel you in. Because if you ever get there, you can be assured you've been given life, life abundant, life everlasting. Those who believe in me I will raise up on the last day. That's what he said. Dr. Fred Craddock was a professor for many years. Right after bachelor's, master's, doctoral degree, he became a professor and worked at that task for nearly 40 years, retired a few years ago from our Canada School of Theology, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He has written about a freshman student who was talking with him one day, a young woman. She's sort of pouring out her heart to him, didn't know him all that well. She said, you know, this year's been really hard for me. I came from a little nowhere place. I didn't have as much money as all the other students seemed to have. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any dates. I seemed to have arrived behind where everybody else was, so I didn't make good grades. Late one afternoon, she said, I walked up onto the bridge that crosses the river. I climbed up on the rail. And as the sun was going down, I looked into those dark, swirling waters down below. Suddenly, she said, a line came to me. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And here I am, she said. Dr. Craddock said, where'd you get that line? She said, I don't know. He said, do you go to church? No, she said. Well, when I was a little girl, and I'd go see my grandmother in the summer, 
she would make me go to church. And Dr. Craddock said, Ah. 